Welcome, I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six-Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six-Gun Justice podcast corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. The Six-Gun Justice podcast is going international again today, this time to Germany for a conversation segment with Manuela Schneider. Being in Germany has never been a hindrance to Manuela's love of American Native and Western history. Her fascination with pioneer life, cowboy heroes, and treacherous outlaws has been her constant companion for as long as she can remember. After leaving a successful career designing motorcycle fashion for the European market, Schneider penned her first Western fiction novel in 2017. To date, she has written and published three books that feature strong female characters who are immersed in a battle against hardship, mystery, and deception while searching for true love and a better life. Her latest novel, Arma del Diablo, The Cult of Destiny, takes her writing in a slightly different direction with a tale of jeopardy in contemporary times tied to a deadly conspiracy and a devil-cursed six-gun, the deadly cult belonging to Johnny Ringo. Hello, friend. How are you? Hi there. I'm very honored to be online with you today. This is amazing. (laughs) Excited. Thank you. Were you born in Germany or were you born in the United States and went to Germany? No, I was born and raised in Germany, uh, but my family is very international. We have some French, some Egyptian and German ancestors. So I have been a traveling bird all my life, literally, but I was born and raised in Germany itself. When was the first time you came to the United States? Pretty late, actually. That was on a round trip through the Southwest in 1996. I worked for six years in Sri Lanka, south of India, and Maldives and Singapore. And after over six years, I had more than enough of Far East, and I thought it's about time to see the other side of the planet. Since I always did a lot of study on Western pioneer history and American natives, it was highest time to come over to the U.S. The first trip was April 96. Here you are, this young girl in Germany with an international family per se, but how do you get into the Western genre? Were Westerns on TV in Germany at that time? Yeah, matter of fact, as a child, I grew up with Gunsmoke and Bonanza. Of course, like most women, I was in love with Little Joe. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) later on, they also started to show Little House on the Prairie. And I openly admit, I still watch Little House on the Prairie. We have Gold Channel and they still show Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, Little House on the Prairie. They still show Bonanza. And I grew up with it. And then in addition, I read all the Karl May books. And I was very upset when I got to know that he had never been in the U.S., that he made up all this stuff, you know. So I thought, okay, what you have to do is study the real books. And I really got heavily into studying a lot about the American native tribes. That's how it started. Little House on the Prairie and books about the Apaches and Lakotas. You bring up Karl May. Obviously, he is a huge name in Germany, especially when it comes to Westerns. Is he still popular there? What we have is a huge open-air set in Bad Segeberg, and they do play Karl May stories open-air. It's a huge set. It has the size of, I would say, half of Tombstone. 
Normally, the season runs from the 1st of May until end of September. And last year, they had to cancel it due to Corona. But the year before, in 2019, they drew 450,000 visitors within that one season. Yeah, what a lot of people don't know, we have five or six Western cities, made up Western towns in Germany that show a lot about the pioneer history. We have the Southern Boys Parades. We have uh, pioneer dances. We have buffalo herds. We have American natives that live in Germany that help the whole different powwows. A lot of us are very interested in it. We have people that spend every weekend doing reenacting, and people are surprised to hear that. But a lot of us are interested in it because a lot of Germans migrated during pioneer times to the U.S., a lot of them, thousands. So we are still kind of hooked by it. It's always interesting to me how international Westerns are. There's a huge Western publishing history in Australia, in the Netherlands, and in Germany, as well as elsewhere, of course, South America and other places. But for the Western to be that accepted worldwide, there has to be something at the heart of these stories that connects with everybody. What do you think that is? I would think, especially nowadays, we appreciate the old values the respect for each other, the respect for each other's property, going out for an adventure, hoping for a better tomorrow, finding my own piece of luck, you know, so to speak. At that time, when Germans started to migrate to the U.S., it was not allowed to have an own piece of land here in our country. You were not allowed to marry the person you wanted to marry or have the religion you wanted to have. All that was strictly prohibited by all the lords, earls, and kings, you know. So I think nowadays, especially, the good man wins. The values are respected. Most times, Westerns have some sort of happy end. Plus, also, I think it has to do with the fact that in a Western, you are allowed to protect your property and you're allowed to fight against injustice. That is something that we do not always get in real life, right? And I think that kind of spirit of justice is what draws a lot of people to Western. I agree with you. I also can see there's a certain inclusivity in Westerns. The frontier had so many immigrants from so many different places, and their stories are told in Westerns, right? Even in our television shows, there's always something about the immigrants who come here and what they faced, whether it be the Chinese or the Germans, the Irish or anybody. It makes an impact when you see yourself or your background in these stories. Well, for me, it's like that. Many times the Germans, they ask, how the hell do you get into Western? And why did you leave places like the Maldives, which are paradisely beautiful? But I tell them, you know, sometimes we have people make fun of the Germans, people make fun of Americans. We have the tendency to make fun of other nations. I tell them, if you make fun of the Americans, you're literally spitting into the face of your grandfather and great-grandfather. Because if you look into the phone book of Phoenix, for example, I would say approximately 40 to 60 percent of the names are German heritage names. 
<laughs> and so I say, like, if you make fun of them, you make fun of your own roots, dude. In Germany, is there a longing for the freedom of the wide open prairie, even though the Wild West has been civilized? But just the thought of those wide open spaces, there isn't that in Germany, is there? No. Americans, you have any kind of scenery within a couple of hours driving distance, which is an advantage. The Germans that travel to America quite often or regularly for vacation, they love exactly that. And I can say my own person, the first time I went to the Grand Canyon, I sat at the rim and I was crying like a little child because for the first time in my life, I had the feeling that this is eternity. And we human beings, we are not even at dust cold. We are literally nothing compared to this. Certain scenery, especially in the southwest of the USA, when I see them, Paul, I swear to God, I think, okay, this is proof for God's creation. This is the proof right there. Here, everything gets constructed because real estate is a big money business. So we start to plow over literally every empty spot available around towns and cities. And for me personally, it got me that far that I'm heavily looking on a second home in the U.S. because I want to have this, I need dust and cacti and red rocks. I don't mind not to see another person for an hour's drive, you know. I don't mind at all because it gives me the ability to breathe freely. So you're a Wild West girl kind of born out of time and place. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> You are reading Karl May. You find out that he's never been to America. He's making all of this stuff up. And you begin reading about the Native American tribes and other intellectual pursuits into American history of the Wild West. Did you read any other American Western authors as you were growing up? Actually, at the beginning, I did not. I think the first time I got into that was the second trip I took. I went to a dude ranch close to Tombstone, and I totally fell in love with the history, and it was so inspiring. At that dude ranch, I met an old spur and bit maker who was the hat wrangler, old Jim Barker, a rugged, stubborn cowboy. And out of the vacation I took there, developed a 26 years amazing friendship, one of the closest person I ever had in my life. He passed away on cancer, but he got me into reading. And first things he got me into Lonesome Dove. You get to watch Lonesome Dove. You need to know who Gus is. You need to see Tombstone. And <laughs> so he literally <laughs> dragged me into it. And that's why I started the first book was actually a different thought behind it. I wanted to create a story about him, about the friendship, the way it developed, about my first trip to Tombstone, the Dragoon Mountains. I wanted to make sure that he sees that and wanted to honor our friendship with my first book. And I'm really glad he got to see it before he passed away. He read it, he liked it, and I will have to rewrite it because my style and language developed further since then. But that was actually the first thing that triggered off writing the first book. Did you write it in English or German? Yeah, funny part. 
Except for Arma del Diablo, I actually, by now I have four books published. And Arma del Diablo is the first book I wrote in German first and translated it back to English. All the others I wrote first in English and translated them back for Wolfpack into German. My family says I even dream in English, it seems. I had no clue, but they asked me like, hey, you were babbling away half of the night. I say, oh, what did I say? Something embarrassing? No, we didn't understand two hoots. It was all English. <laughs> so <laughs> I do. Well, that's pretty I safe do, then. Yeah, I do write both languages myself. I have no translator. I have editors. Thank the Lord for them because the English grammar is still kind of like a little bit on my wrong side. But I write both languages, which is good for me because that's how I got into translating books. In Germany, did you take English in school or how did you develop your English skills? We have three majors in school, German, mathematics and English. In our schools, you have to attend from fifth grade to ninth or tenth grade minimum. You have to learn English. It's a major. If you do not pass in English, you have to repeat the entire class. I had this basic schooling, and then in 88, I went to work on a contract in Sri Lanka, which is south of India, and they have this kind of like Bollywood English. And I learned a lot of vocabulary there, but I got stranded with the grammar because I still had kind of lacking grammar. And so when I came back, I went to an English school and I did my first Cambridge certificate. And from there, I went on and on until I finally achieved the proficiency. I can only tell everybody, you know, go for education, because for me, it opened doors worldwide. The biggest gift for me, the greatest thing, due to be able to speak English like that, I have found friends that turned into family, thicker than blood, family, you know. If I wouldn't be able to speak the language, I would have never achieved that, never. And who needs grammar? We just need vocabulary, right? Who needs grammar? <laughs> oh, ask Mike Bray. <laughs> we need grammar. <laughs> okay. All these picky people about grammar. Uh, <laughs> I get picky with myself about it by now. I realized that lately. <laughs> with all of the many different pursuits that you've had in your life and all the different places and even exotic locations you've lived, why have you come to writing novels at this point in your life? I made a lot of money, high-digit sales for other people's purse. I was very successful, and I realized, you know, I was proud of what I achieved, but for some reason, it never touched my heart or my soul. And then the super disaster happened. I had to have two spine surgeries within a year. And I was not capable to do my job anymore. And at first looked like a disaster was the best thing that could ever happen to me. Because for the first time, I had an excuse to follow my dreams. I escaped. Nowadays, world is kind of really full of troubles. We have this corona and the people killing each other, robbing each other. We have a lot of politics that sucks worldwide, literally. You know, if I want to have a better life, I just need to start, sit at the computer, write. And I totally leave this normal everyday world. And I get so much into the stories that I can smell the dust or I hear the horse hoofs or the sounds of stagecoach producers, you know. 
And it helped me actually to overcome hardship. It really helped me a lot. And something you said some time ago, that characters start to develop an own kind of life in the middle of the book. You know, it's eerie, but it's really true. And you start to become friends with the characters you create. And for me, actually, it has provided a home. I have never in my life been so happy doing a job that I do because I don't do a job for the first time. I follow a dream and a passion, you know, so it's a big difference. Of course, it would be nice if you earned the same bucks like you did with the other uh, jobs and, yeah, that would and be nice. combine it with what you do now. But if you ask me if I would ever trade the bigger paycheck to that, never, ever. I'm never going to give it up because I would have the feeling if I give up being an author, I would literally betray my own soul. True. What you say about characters coming alive and taking control of their own destiny while they're writing, I don't know about you, but for me, if I bumped into one of my characters walking down the street, I wouldn't have any problem accepting that as reality. They're that yeah. real to me. Same to me, same. Well, actually, I also use characters that have really lived, like in Tombstone, like the Birdcage Theater book describes characters that have actually really lived. So I do a lot of historical research. Sometimes it's a building, sometimes it's a historical character that influences me or inspires me for a story. Sometimes it's little details. For example, the clicking of a hammer when the reenactors use their guns, you know, like loaded with blanks, of course. That clicking sound actually was one of the most inspiring sounds I heard. It was just a little, little detail, but it stuck to my mind and I added it in the next book, you know. For me, I wouldn't be astonished if one or two of the characters walks down Allen Street and I say, ah, oh, okay, you're here now. Fine. <laughs> I brought you here, right? It's amazing. It's eerie sometimes, but I have the feeling that to a certain degree, a book starts to dictate itself and I'm just a tool hitting the keys on my computer. It's amazing. It's exciting. It is. And people who are not writers hear you say things like that and think you're out of your mind because it all sounds woo-woo and supernatural to them. But in reality, when you're really in the zone and writing, that's exactly what it's like. You're just typing the keys and it's coming from somewhere out in the ionosphere. By the way, I got to tell you, they always, almost daily, show an old show called Diagnosis Murder. Oh, um, I know Diagnosis Murder, yes. Every time I watch that show, I have to think, like, that is the character Paul Bishop actually created, right? Well, I didn't create the characters, but I did write for that show for a couple yeah. of seasons and yeah. had a lot of fun with it. And it led to a lot of other opportunities. I do read a lot, of course, and I started to read differently from what I did before. Before I was consuming books for the story, and it was like a leisure activity. Now I read books completely different. I see like, how did the person create this chapter or this situation? Because I have started to see every single book as a teaching lesson for myself. So I read the books in a much more detailed way, and I see different tiny little pieces that a couple of years ago, I would have never seen those details. You were reading as a writer as opposed to reading as just a reader. 
Exactly. And really, I'm learning from each single book. And I had the opportunity to translate some books for Wolfpack. It's amazing because it honors me with the chance to learn from some of the best. I learned a lot when I translated Mr. Rundell's book. You know, I had certain words that I had no clue what the heck's that. And I started to Google a lot of historical weapons, for example. I Googled the pictures of it because I wanted to make sure I really translate the perfect piece, you know, really do it right because I owe it to Mr. Rundell. And I learned a tremendous amount of historical details, circumstances about other tribes I hadn't known by then. I learned a lot. And it's an honor. It's amazing. It's a lot of work to translate the book. It's like almost a hundred hours, but it's like an open school book, actually, for me. Let's talk about your latest novel, Arma del Diablo, The Cult of Destiny. Mm -hmm. This is a little different for you because it is set in a contemporary time, but it also has this historical mystery attached to it. How did that story come to you? I visited Johnny Ringo's grave a couple of times, and everybody thinks that most likely it was not suicide, and it's still not clear who really killed him. I got to know that the gun that called is still actually existing. And the funny part was when Wolfpack published the book, 10 days later, that very gun got sold in an auction for over $100,000. I always thought that a gun is meant to kill people, but it's also depending on who holds the gun. A gun like that is about power, and power corrupts people to a certain degree. And I always liked that Johnny Depp movie called The Ninth Gate, about a curse created by the devil. I was very interested in the history of the gun, in the history of Johnny Ringo. Plus, I'm also interested in the spiritual history of the Roman Catholic Church because I have quite some high members of the Roman Catholic Church in my family. Lucky me, I have access of one of the biggest libraries of the Benedictine Order in Switzerland because my cousin is monk there. So that's how I got it all together. And I do much more research for my books than what I used to do with the first two books, you know. And the more research I do, the more fascinating it is. It is amazing. And all the places given and almost all the characters in that book really did exist. All the abbeys and the libraries, and there are even some prayers in that book from the Benedictine order. It's all there. If the readers are interested, I can send pictures of the library of the monastery that plays a major part in the book, pictures of the cemetery where Mr. Colt is actually really buried. And I was lucky that Peter Shereko gave me some important details about that cult. He gave me the serial number and everything because he is the walking encyclopedia about guns. In the frontier times, Wild West, he knows literally everything about it. And that's how I set the story together, because there's a big demand in Germany for mystery books. And that kind of like combines the two genres a little bit. Makes commercial sense. Manuela, thank you very much for being with me today on the show. Really appreciate your time. And hopefully we will talk again soon. 
Hope so. Planning to come over in March 2022 and hope to meet you then. That would be great. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and keep your hi-ho silvered. Adios, we're out of here. Let's ride. Mm-hmm.